All right, well, morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and get started. It's 9.54, so we need to start. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer as we get started here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Thank you for this church, Lord, and that uh, we can all meet here together in freedom. Lord, we pray that that would continue. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together and that you would work through your word to accomplish what you want to do. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. We are going to continue looking at Paul's epistle, Paul's epistle to the church in Colossae. And let's see, where's my black marker? And we are continuing today with verses 18 to 23. That's our text for this morning. And if you'll remember from our outline that we've been working with, our three-point outline of the book of Colossians, we are in the second section of the book, which is essentially the knowledge of Christ. Because you remember that what Paul wants to do in this epistle, his purpose in writing it, is to teach this young church in Colossae the essentials of Christianity. And of course, that means they need to understand the person and work of Jesus, and then what that person and work of Jesus means to them, and what they ought to do in response to it as the fruit of their faith. And so we are now in the second section of the book, which is the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of Christ. Who is Jesus, and what has he done for us? All right? And um, we... The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at verses 15, 16, and 17, and there's just so much packed into that. If you remember, Paul starts his discussion of Jesus, who Jesus is, by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation, and that Jesus is the one who created everything, and Jesus holds everything together. Those are the statements we've been looking at the last few weeks. Those are big statements about the power of Jesus and about his deity, about the fact that he's God, right? You can't hold everything together unless you're the one who made everything, unless you're God himself. And so we've been looking at that the last few weeks. And so today, as we're taking a look at a little more than one verse, (laughs) rather than what we did last week, um, in verses 18 to 23, Paul is doing two things. So these are the two things we're going to look at this morning and what Paul is doing. Firstly, he is going to talk about the preeminence of Christ, And he's going to tell us more about who Jesus is. And then he's going to move almost seamlessly into talking about what Jesus has done for us. And namely what he's talking about there is redemption and reconciliation. And what is that? What does it mean for his recipients in Colossae to be reading all of these sorts of things? Okay, so that's essentially the two parts of this. The preeminence of Christ and the redemptive work of Christ. So we're moving from who Jesus is to what Jesus has done. So let's go ahead and um, read this text that we're going to be looking at today. Again, it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and I'll read that for us here. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated 
and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can see there's a lot of claims that Paul's making there. There's a lot of rich theology in these verses. And really, we could spend an entire week on each of the verses here again. We could spend a long time on these things. But if we're going to finish Colossians before I graduate seminary, we kind of need to you know, do a little more of a cursory overview of some of these things. All right. So, verse 18, let's start there and start working our way through Paul's two points, the preeminence of Christ and the redemption of Christ. So, verse 18, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So, Paul has been up to this point in the previous few verses, like we've seen the last few weeks, he's been making heavy statements about Jesus. Heavy statements about who Jesus is. And here's another one. What's the identity of Jesus? He is the head of the body. There's a, Paul is using a metaphor. He's saying Jesus is the head of the church. Now, this concept of headship... Oops. Spell correctly here. Goodness sakes, I'm in graduate school and I can't spell the word head. Um, headship. This concept of headship in Scripture is one that is actually hotly debated in theology right now. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but headship, uh, these statements in the Bible about someone being the head of somebody else, is very much disputed between, say, your progressive or liberal theological side and more of your conservative theological side and of course you probably are able to guess right now what I'm referring to here aside from Jesus being the head of the church who else in the Bible is called the head of somebody else yeah right the husband well who does who does the Bible say that the husband is the head of the wife wife. right Ephesians 5 The husband is the head of the wife. Now, this is where um, your more progressive or liberal side of theology is going to want to understand headship in a certain way. And the way that they want to understand headship is in the sense of life-giving. Headship, for these more progressive theologians means life-giving. And you might be like, well, what are you talking about? What does it mean, life-giving? Okay. Well, this concept of life-giving and, and the head being symbolic of life-giving goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. Now, you thought you were done with philosophy last week. No, no. Anytime I have the opportunity, some philosophy is going to come up here. Right? But for the ancient Greeks, for the ancient Greeks, In their philosophy, they viewed the human soul as the thing which gives life to physical objects, okay? So for us human beings, if we don't have a soul, we're a corpse. We can identify with that, right? If if, if our soul departs from us, our our body's going to fall on the ground, we're gone, 
right? That's what happens when we die. Our soul departs from the body. The Greeks kind of thought the same way. They're thinking, oh, the soul is the thing that gives life to the human body, to that physical thing. Without the soul, the human body is just dust. And it returns to dust as soon as the soul leaves it. All right? And so for the Greeks, they said, anything that lives has a soul. So they would say then that, as Aristotle pointed out, that animals have souls and even plants have souls. Because plants are alive and animals are alive and human beings are alive. So they all have this thing called soul that makes them alive. Now, an animal has a different kind of soul than a human being. Human beings have rational powers. They don't have the same thing. But that's what the Greeks would talk about. All right? The soul is something which gives life to an inanimate object. It makes it animate. It makes it animal-like, moving. That's more like spirit than soul. Yeah, right. It's kind of like spirit. But soul and spirit in the Bible are kind of synonymous. Right, because we would say that a human being is made of a body and soul. Right? The, the Greeks were right about that point, at least. But we'd understand it a little differently than what they're saying. We wouldn't say an, uh, that a, an animal has a soul, for example, or something like that. Um, but anyway, and here's why this is all important. You're like, how does this relate to this? All right. For the Greeks, the soul is the life-giving thing, and the soul resides in the mind of a human being. The soul is in the head. Okay? The soul is in the head. So for the Greeks to talk about something being the head of something else, our more progressive theologians are going to say that the headship means the same thing that the Greeks meant by the life-giving soul. It means that if someone is the head of someone else, that that person gives life to the other person. And by giving life, that means that they are nourishing and supporting and cherishing the other. So now you see what these more progressive theologians are going to say about headship when, when it says that Jesus is the head of the church or when the scripture says that the husband is the head of the wife. All that means is that Jesus cherishes, nourishes, and supports the church. The husband cherishes, nourishes, and supports his wife. And you see why they would understand that based on this, this ancient Greek thought here. They're saying that's what Paul's referring to when he's talking about headship in these various passages. Right? It, just, it just means to support and nourish and cherish. That's all it means. Now, you have more on the conservative side, the understanding of headship as not being simply life-giving or supporting, but here, headship means more particularly authority. That is, it's not just about supporting, but for someone to be the head of somebody else means that they have authority. So in this understanding, when the scripture talks about Jesus being the head of the church, it's not just that Jesus supports the church, although we certainly would say that, but is that Jesus has authority over the church. And likewise, you carry this this um, headship over to um, the relationship of the husband and the wife. Here, we would see the, the husband being the head of the wife, meaning that the husband has authority over the wife. And not more authority than God. Husband can never tell the wife to do anything against God's will. He can't, he can't exert his authority in any kind of tyrannical way. But nonetheless, there is this kind of authority the husband has over the wife. Okay, And that's more of the traditional 
conservative theological understanding of headship. Now, this is important, I think, because Paul's making a claim about the headship of Jesus over the church, and it's important to understand which of these two the Scripture is really referring to. So if you will, flip a few pages back in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. I know we're, we're bouncing out of Colossians for a second, but we're going to come right back to it, and you'll see why we're doing this here. Colossians chapter 5. I just want to read for you three verses, verses 22, 23, and 24. Okay? Because Paul's going to talk about headship here, and he's going to give us some very important keys to understanding what headship is in his own mind. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, he says, this is Paul again writing to the church in Ephesus, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I want you to notice something here. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a strong statement, a very difficult statement to hear. And then in verse 23, you notice that it starts with the word for. You see that? F-O-R. That is Paul indicating reason. We've seen that over and over again in our studies of of various texts. When Paul uses the word for, he's indicating reason. In other words, why? Why should the wife submit to their own husband as to the Lord? The reason is because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So here what Paul's doing is is, is he is drawing an analogous relationship between the relationship of the husband and the wife to the relationship of Christ and the church. So we have over here the headship of Christ. And these two are going together with let's get rid of this here. The headship of husbands. Alright? That word, even as, or those two words, sorry, even as in verse 23 is drawing a comparison between the two. That is, we need to see these relationships together. They are, they are analogous of each other. Headship of Christ and the headship of husbands. Now, who submits to Christ according to the text? The church. The church. All right, so we put the church up here. So the church is going to submit to Christ. Now, who, according to the text, submits to the husband? Wife, yeah. In this case, we'll put it in the plural because we've got husbands on top. Wives. And what Paul is arguing here is that marriage, and he'll say this later on in Ephesians 5, he'll say marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is supposed to put on display for the world to see the relationship of Christ to the church. Now, the church ought to submit to Christ in everything because Christ is in authority over the church. And Paul says, in the same way, wives submit to the husbands. Now, this is very countercultural, isn't it? It's very much against modern feminism, wanting to liberate and so on, rebelling against what the scripture clearly teaches. But 
This is what Paul clearly says. Now, some would try to argue, okay, wait a second here. Yes, the wives need to submit to the husbands, but this text is supposed to be elliptical. What, it, what Paul's really saying is not that the wife submits to the husband, but you're supposed to take it also inversely, that the wife submits to the husband and the husband submits to the wife. You're supposed to submit to each other. The problem is you completely destroy Paul's analogy here if you do that. Because Christ doesn't submit to the church, does he? No, the church submits to Christ. It's only this way. So you break up Paul's analogy if you do that, and then you end up corrupting the whole image of the church, the whole picture here that Paul is drawing for us here. Now, when we want to understand the difference between the headship of life-giving and the headship of authority, I don't know how you can say that there's no authority in view here in the idea of headship. Because Paul says... Wives submit to the husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. See that there is an intrinsic idea of authority in the concept of headship. And so if we flip back over to Colossians then, when Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church, not just saying that Jesus supports it and nourishes and cherishes it, although he certainly does all of those things, but this is a claim to authority. That Jesus is in charge of the church. This is huge. Because for us, we hear Paul say that as 21st century Christians, and we're like, well, duh. Of course Jesus is in authority over the church. That's not news. But think about it in this context of the first century Colossians, when the Christian movement is just getting started. They would have had no trouble would have had no trouble at all saying, oh yeah, God is the head of the church. Yahweh is the head of the church. I got no problem seeing that. That's the same as it was in the Old Testament. But wait a minute here. Jesus is the head of the church? You're t Paul, are you talking about that Jesus who was walking around in Palestine just a few decades earlier? You're talking about that Jesus? That guy is the head of the church? There's big stuff here. That guy is in authority? And Paul says, yes, Jesus is in authority over the church. He is the only authority whom we give absolute credence to. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other legitimate authorities in the church. Right? The scripture elsewhere prescribes elders and deacons and you know, just various church offices that also have authority in the church. But no one has more authority than Jesus, and everyone answers to Jesus because the whole church submits to Jesus. Okay? Do you understand headship there and why that is the right way to understand it in our view? Okay, good. Um, so Jesus is the head of the body, namely the church. And then Paul makes a second statement about who Jesus is. That is, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And here Paul is describing sort of part of the nature of the new covenant. Right? Part of the nature of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. What Jesus is doing, and we find this elsewhere in scripture. I don't have the references written down. But we find this elsewhere in scripture. That when Jesus came and died and rose again, he inaugurated a new part of redemptive history. This is the part of redemptive history that the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. And that part of history is called the latter days. 
Okay, so we are in the latter days right now. And they've been going on since Jesus came again. Excuse me, since Jesus came the first time. He is the beginning, the, the, the beginning, the origin, the inaugurating point of this last period of redemptive history that we call the latter days, which we are in. And this is the point in history where we are waiting for him to come again and to consummate what is both already and not yet. You ever heard that before, the already and the not yet? Yeah. See, we are already living in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not yet in another sense. It has not come in its fullness, and it won't come in its fullness until we're in the new heavens and the new earth. That is when everything will come to fruition. Okay? He's the firstborn from the dead. This is Paul referring to, to Jesus' resurrection. That is, when Jesus was resurrected, he got his glorified body. Right? The same kind of, well, at least a similar kind of glorified body as to the kind that we will receive in our resurrection in the last, the last time. Because right? we all believe, as we say in the Nicene Creed, in the resurrection of the dead, that is specifically talking about us, our, our, our bodies being raised again and being made perfect. We'll have new bodies. And we will have those bodies when we live in the new earth in the consummation. Okay? So we're not going to be spirits floating around in the clouds in heaven as some old paintings try to uh, make us believe. Uh, we will have bodies. Paul teaches this elsewhere in, in other epistles. And Jesus, because he is the first one to receive that resurrection body, according to Paul here, he is preeminent in everything. And that's the result. He's the first one, the first one to be raised from the dead, the first one to receive his resurrection body. And Paul here is alluding to other passages that he wrote. Particularly, I think it's in 2 Thessalonians, if I remember right, but I don't have it written down. Um, and so then uh, we get to verse 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You remember that um, when we were dealing with verses 15 and 16, about like three weeks ago, I think it was. In verses 15 and 16, we talked a little bit about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, right? and how they had tried to interpret verses 15, particularly verse 15, as talking about how Jesus was created, and that he is not God. And we had shown that that wasn't the case. And if you look here in verse 19, all you got to do is just do a cursory reading of it to see that this is Paul proclaiming, without any ambiguity, the full deity of Jesus. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. If someone takes verse 15, like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses will do if you talk to them at your front door, if they take this verse out of context then they can try to make a case that Jesus was created, that he's not God. But all you got to do is say, hey, guys, just look three verses later. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not the partness, not part of God, not most of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, if, if all of Paul's statements before this 
were even a little ambiguous to the Colossians. Now they're not. Why is Jesus the head of the church? Why is Jesus to be preeminent overall? It's because he is the fullness of God. And now, after verse 19, as we move into verse 20, now Paul is going to start to make that transition we were talking about. See, we've been talking about the preeminence of Christ, the fact that he's God, all the things about Jesus. Now Paul's moving into the redemptive work of Christ. He's moving into the teaching about reconciliation, moving into the teaching about sin and salvation. In verse 20. And now it's beginning to hit home with his recipients. It's starting to have a little more application. They're starting to see why they should care so much about who Jesus is. Why do all these things matter? Verse 20. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a lot of stuff in this verse too. Calvin has a lot of stuff to say about this verse in his commentary. There's pages on it uh, in, his, in his commentary on Colossians here. Paul's now beginning to teach on reconciliation, which is the doctrine of how we, as sinful people, are reconciled to a holy God. How are we as unholy people reconciled to a holy God? This is the crux of Scripture right here. Because this is our problem as human beings. We are not worthy of God's grace. We are not worthy to be in his presence. We are not worthy of eternal life. But the scripture teaches us how we get that. And Paul is now going to explain it to the Colossians in a very simple but powerful way. First of all, notice that when Paul starts to, to talk about reconciliation here, he says that, he's going to, that Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Now stop and think about that for a second. What's Paul saying? What in heaven needs reconciliation? I thought heaven was perfect. Or is it perfect? <coughs> Paul's saying that, that everything on earth needs reconciliation. Of course we would say that, right? Because earth is in sin. But why does he say that Christ's job was to reconcile things in heaven. That's a little out of the box from what we normally think about, right? When he talks about things on earth, we naturally, of course, fill in the blank there with human beings. Because obviously we know, as we just said, we need reconciliation to a holy God as an unholy people. We need to be reconciled. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they plunged all of humanity into the depths of total depravity. Where every aspect of our being has been infiltrated by the effects of sin. And of course, we may not always think about this, but I think we all have been told this before. Sin is not just something that impacted human beings. But sin is also something that impacted the whole of the cosmos, right? Sin is not just something that happened to us. But Adam and Eve's sin plunged all of the cosmos into sin. So animals have been affected by sin. The, the trees have been affected by sin. The rocks have been affected by sin. The whole world has been affected by sin as a result of the fall, right? Yeah, we would all say that. 
Satan got kicked out. Okay, the bad angels, okay, yep. What about uh, folks like uh, Enoch that was translated without dying and all? Mm-hmm. That's him too. Mm-hmm, yep, they all reflected. Re- mm-hmm, right, exactly. Every, all of them need reconciliation. Now, getting on the line of angels there, the angels need reconciliation, even the good ones. That's something to think about. Why? Is that what Paul is referring to here when he talks about all things in heaven need reconciliation? See, when Calvin comments on this passage, and I feel like I'm standing on you know so, pretty solid ground when I start talking about Calvin. But Calvin comments on this passage, and he says that when God refers to all things, or sorry, when, uh, when the text here refers to all things in heaven, that what Paul means is the angels, even the good angels. That is that, as Calvin says, without the grace of Christ preserving them, all of the angels in heaven would have fallen along with Satan. Now, we can get a little too speculative here, and Calvin warns about this. He says, listen, I'm just trying to understand what Paul says. I don't want to get off into vain speculation about angels. But I think he's got a point there. Because angels are beings too, just like us. They need the grace of God just as much as we do to remain in their service to God, to remain faithful to God. And so what Paul is saying here is that even the angels need reconciliation. They need a final atonement that will keep them secure in the love of God for all of eternity, lest they fall like the others. They need it. We need it. And that's Calvin's view. You can, you can um, try to understand that differently, but it's... it's Trying to get at this idea, what what all things in heaven is Paul referring to here? Now, then look also at, right before that, all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, the all things that you're seeing in verse 20 there, um, in the Greek, is in the neuter grammatical gender. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's fine. Um, The neuter grammatical gender means that it's not simply referring to people, But it's actually referring to things, too. Non-human things. If it were just referring to people, it would be grammatically in the masculine. But here it's grammatically in the neuter, so it's referring to more than just people. Now, we can get a little, you know, people get a little wacky with this sometimes, so we want to be careful. But there is a sense that we can see in Scripture in passages like this and in other places where it says that Jesus died for the sins of the cosmos that there's a certain sense in which we can say that Jesus' death not only accomplished reconciliation for his people, his believers, and not only for heavenly beings, the heavenly things Paul's talking about here, but there's a certain kind of reconciliation accomplished for all of the sin in all of creation as a result of the fall. Remember, God, in the Exodus account, when he wants to dwell with his people in the temple or in the tabernacle, he can only be in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because everything outside of that is sinful on some level. And God, and that, that one place was consecrated and made holy by God so that he could be there with his people. The whole of the cosmos is sinful. And what God wants to do, and according to the biblical story is he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with us. 
And he does that in an already sense, right now. He does dwell with us right now, already. But there's a not yet aspect to this, where he can't dwell with us fully yet, until we're in the new heavens and new earth, where everything is fully perfect and fully able for God to be in our presence. Until everything is perfectly cleansed. And so there's this idea of the reconciliation of the cosmos itself making the way for the new cosmos to be established. Now, we want to be careful with this, like I said, because we don't, I mean, it sounds really weird to say Jesus died for the trees. <laughs> we don't really mean, mean it like it sounds. But the world, the whole world was plunged into sin. And so Jesus' reconciliation on the cross is not just about people, but it's also about bringing the whole world into a state in which one day, in the not yet aspect of this, God can fully dwell with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're interested in that whole concept, which isn't talked about a lot, but is there in historic Christianity, um, you can get a brand new book that's coming out in two weeks by one of my professors at RTS, Dr. Benjamin Glad, and it's called, um, it's called From Adam and Israel to the Church, I think. It's not a very catchy title, because I have a... <laughs> you can tell it's not catchy when you have a hard time remembering it. But um, you, can, uh, you can get that book. It's, it's on Amazon. You can order it. It comes out on December 3rd, I think. I'm reading it right now for a class. It's a fantastic book dealing with this particular issue. Um, and um, this is something Calvin talks about, too, in his Institutes. Okay, so, deep stuff there, right? Stuff we don't hear about very often. But it's, it's important to think about a little bit, I think. Now, second half of verse 20, after the comma, where it says, making peace by the blood of the cross, there Paul is beginning to talk about the means by which this reconciliation is accomplished. So reconciliation is accomplished for all things on the earth and all things in heaven by means of the blood of his cross. And that word blood, which you're seeing there, is a metonymy, a poetic device that is referring to something that is bloody, namely a sacrifice. That all this reconciliation is possible. All this reconciliation happens by means of the sacrifice offered on the cross. This is huge. There have been Progressive and liberal theologians in the past that have tried to say, well, Jesus' death on the cross, really, that was just Jesus trying to show us how much God loves us. Jesus' death on the cross was just simply God demonstrating for us how much he loved us. Now, that's true, right? God does demonstrate how much he loves us in sending Jesus on the cross. But that's not all it is. Well, then some come along and said, well... You know, Jesus' death on the cross was an example to show us that we need to be willing to die for God. We need to be willing to die for our faith. Well, I mean, of course, that's true too. But that's not all that Jesus accomplished. In fact, that's, that's to miss the whole point. No, the scripture in this passage and others unambiguously teaches that Jesus' death on the cross was not just an example for us but it was in itself a bloody sacrifice. It was a bloody sacrifice. And it needed to be a bloody sacrifice. That's why Paul's emphasizing the blood aspect here. Because anyone in the Old Testament knew that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. In fact, that is written in Hebrews chapter 10. The author explicitly says, 
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross by his blood is a sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice for sin. It is a sacrifice to pay the debt that we deserve so that reconciliation could happen for us. And now Paul in verse 21 is is making this real applicable to his readers. We're going to go through this quickly because we're running out of time here. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his blood in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's strong. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind. See, the scripture does not teach that prior to conversion, prior to our faith in Christ, that we, human beings, are neutral toward God, or that we're indifferent toward God, or that we could care less about whether God exists or not. The scripture doesn't teach that anyone searches for God. In fact, it says explicitly, no one seeks after God. No one searches for him. Because we are by nature, by instinct, hostile to God, not just in our emotions, but in our mind, it's in our intellect. We see the, the clear evidence for God's existence in creation. We see that he's here. We see that he made all of these things, but we suppress it, according to Paul in Romans 1. We suppress that knowledge. We fight against it. We are hostile to it. We do not want God by nature. That is the state of human beings prior to conversion, prior to faith in Christ. You were once alienated and hostile in mind. This doesn't just apply to the Colossians. This is a universal. It applies to all of us. Doing evil deeds. And yet, by Jesus' work, we are now reconciled in order to present us holy and blameless. We are presented before the Father as holy and blameless. And that is only by the work of Christ. By his payment for our sins and by the transfer of his perfect righteousness to our spiritual bank accounts, if you will. So that we're considered, we are presented as if we were holy and righteous, even though we're actually sinners on the inside. This is what Luther meant when he talked about um, Simmel used this. At Peccator. How many of you have ever heard this statement before? Maybe some of you have a little bit, particularly around Reformation Day, you might hear this a little more. Simul justus at Peccator is a Latin phrase which means simultaneously or at the same time, Christians are just and sinner. At the same time, we are sinful in and of ourselves, we sin, we have a sin nature. We're depraved, but at the same time, in the eyes of God, because of the work of Christ, we are considered to be righteous. We are considered to be just. We're at the same time just and sinner. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, and we can see that principle being articulated here when it says, in order to present you as holy and blameless. We're presented to God as holy and blameless, even though we're not holy and blameless in and of ourselves. And that pulls, works, out of the equation in our salvation. And then finally, just to wrap up here, Paul in verse 23 attaches a condition to salvation. 
I'm careful with this, but he attaches a condition. He says, all these things are true if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and if, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now see the condition, he says. All of these things are yours if you continue in the faith. Now, there have been some who have come along and said, oh, okay, Paul attaches that condition. Well, that must mean that you fulfill the condition. That must mean that you can lose the condition, or that you can lose the results if you lose the condition. But to to understand it that way would be to grossly misunderstand the nature of the covenant of grace in Scripture. Because the Scripture does not teach that we fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Now, the scripture teaches that God prescribes the conditions of the covenant, namely faith and faithfulness. But we don't fulfill them. God graciously fulfills the conditions for us. And he uses calls like this, calls to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, calls to keep yourself in the love of God, calls to... To if indeed you continue in the faith. All these things God is using to fulfill the conditions himself by means of the effectual power of his spirit working through the word. Praise God for that. He did it for the Colossians. God fulfilled the stipulations of the covenant for them. And praise God that he does that for us today. Let these verses, verse 21, 22, and 23 be spoken directly to us. Because this is all true for us. Praise God that Jesus saved us. And we didn't have anything to do with it. We can't get any credit. All glory to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for inspiring your apostle to write this epistle to the Colossians. Lord, there's a lot of deep stuff in this passage that is... Um, at times difficult to understand. Um, But Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity as we continue to walk through this letter. Lord, prepare us now to worship you in spirit and in truth in the service in just a few minutes. And pray that you would prepare us also to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.